New Media Comedy Worldwide Studios. New Media Comedy Worldwide presents Comedy Legacy Series with Jim Mandrinos. And now, your host, Jim Mandrinos. Hey everybody, welcome to the Comedy Legacy Show. I'm Jim Mandrinos, your host, and one of the most fun parts of this for me is I get to talk to some people that are lifelong friends, people that I grew up with in the industry, and today we're going to be talking to Carol Montgomery, who might literally be one of the first real comics I met when I started here in New York City. And we have such wildly opposing viewpoints on how to create and how to write. It makes for a fun conversation. We argue with each other all the time when we're together, and we're going to talk about some of those differences here and how she creates. And even more important for you guys, she is a master at reinventing herself from the, the national mom to, you know, funny women of a certain age, she always comes up with something new to keep herself relevant in the industry, which is what we all need to do as performers as we keep moving on. So with, without any more hesitation, let's bring up your comic for today, Miss Carol Montgomery. And we are here uh, in quarantine. We're recording this in May with Carol Montgomery. Uh, there she is, uh, one of my oldest friends in comedy. I think I met you uh, when you were a fetus. I was a fetus, but I think I met you literally my first month in stand-up. Probably you and Probably. Jeanette Barber are the two that are still around that I met during that time. That, you're that I, yeah, you're a little brat. I you're was. A little, you're a little brat, just fucking. I ain't be a comedian. I ain't be a comedian. And all these years later, I still want to be a comedian. <laughs> I know. You're, look, I'm wearing Brooklyn Dodgers. Oh. T. Yes, yes. So I'm sorry. Continue with this fabulous introduction. No, this fabulous introduction. Uh, and we are here to talk about all things comedy and hopefully give you guys some uh, wisdom for the next generation. There's a whole lot of comics that are unfamiliar with your work. So we're going to cover a little bit of your history and then we'll take it from there. Okay. Uh, I wanted to uh, I wanted to start with where you are right now, because we are in pandemic, mm -hmm. and one of the most amazing things that I think I've seen is even in the midst of a pandemic, artists have to find outlets. Right. You started a, a talk show. Yes, so I did. Give me a give me a little insight on what that's about and how you came up with it. Um. Well, as you know, because we, for the people who are watching this, Jim and I disagree on everything. And so, um, you know, he, you know, I, I, and I, this is not a put down to any of the comics. You know, I, 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 we all have to figure out a way how to do our creativity. Uh, so, you know, we, 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 you know, Jim was one of the first people to go, do you want to do a Zoom show? And I said, not on your fucking life. I'm not, you know, and I still won't. I just, it's just not what I want to do. But what I also mentioned earlier to Jim was, I was so taken aback by this. I mean, the, the, like I, I still to this day can't really wrap my head around. Like I remember when it was first starting because I was still doing shows when, when the virus was still around in March. And we were joking, you know, we were joking around like, well, we'll just wipe the mic or, well, we've lived in comedy condos, so we're immune. And it was all these really, you know, and then, and I, I remember saying, how the hell are they going to lock down New York City? You know, the rest of the country is a different story because it's not as dense as us. And then we did. We locked down New York City. You know, there was nobody. The only people on the streets at the beginning of this were me and my husband because we, we made, made sure we walked every day and all the homeless people because they were like all the crazies were living. You know, now they're like, nobody's here. We can really be crazy. So for the first few weeks, I... I just was walking around like a fog, like I couldn't believe this was happening. You know, my literally uh, the the other show, which we'll talk about also, the the show that I created, Funny Women of a Certain Age, was premiering on March 14th. That Friday, we were on the Today Show pushing it, talking about the pandemic, and then everything went to shit on Monday. So it's kind of been this very surreal thing. So I didn't do anything. I literally put. I mean, you didn't see. I mean, I was on social media and stuff, but. I just kind of pulled back and went, I got to figure this shit out. And then about a month ago, I went, you know, everyone's doing something and I don't want to do stand up per se, but why not do something where, you know, Julia Scotty is one of my dearest friends and she's on the second special. And I thought, you know, Julia and I could, re I could see us 
working as a host and co-host. So I asked her if she wanted to do it, and I had no idea what we were going to do. I call it the early bird special because it's for people of a certain age, and it's every Wednesday at 4 p.m. on um, we stream yard it, and then it goes on to Facebook Live. But it it, it gave me something to do because that first month, I literally was literally from the moment we got up, we were eating. And as soon as it got to 6 p.m., we were drinking. Like, we didn't do anything for a month because we were so taken aback. So that's what the show was. It's the early bird special. We talked to other female comics about their lives and what, you know, it's basically a continuation of women of a certain age. All right. So let's uh, let's start right there with women of a certain age because you were at a point in your career where clubs were dwindling for, for all performers when they crossed the, the other side of 50. The other side. The other, the side. other side, yes. Uh, it dwindles like nobody's business. Um, and rather than bitching about it or complaining, but, well, I also well, know you well enough to know you did those things too. I did too, yes. But in addition to the bitching and complaining, you went out and just said, fuck it, if the industry is not going to feed me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hunt. And yeah. you started women of a certain age. Talk about that process. Well, one of the things, and you know this now because you're uh, you're over the hill now, young yeah. man. And yeah. um, the, the industry, and it's not just comedy. You know, it's theater. Uh, well, theater is different. Theater's a theater will always uh, value older people, but the rest of the industry, film and television, they just you know comedy. You're old, you know. And so when I turned fifty, I started to see it because this is this is a really interesting thing for people who are listening. I have been doing stand-up uh, for 40 years. I actually found out my, because everyone always had their date, and I remember I said I couldn't remember my yeah. date. And I actually found an old diary. So I started on September 5th, 1979, okay? That is exactly four years before I started. Okay. I started September 5th, 1983. Okay, so uh, we have another yeah. thing coming. So when um, I always say, you know, I could have murdered somebody and been out of jail by now. So, um, so, so I was... I was always a road comic, you know, I, I you know, I, I got to headline really early because there were not a lot of strong female headlines. So I was always a road comic. I was a national comic. I worked all over the country, moved to Vegas, uh, did a show there. When I got back to New York City, I was uh, told by people who were trying to book me that I was no longer a national headliner, even though I've played every, and have thousands of TV credits. And I was like, huh, what do you mean? Well, you know, you have to have, you know, well, social media wasn't big then, but it, it, it was, you know, they were just, it, it was a different thing all of a sudden, you know, because of I was getting, I was starting to, you know, I was 50 at that point. Um, so I started to work on directing and um, I, do, I was developing solo shows. I actually worked with Jim on his show, which you should do still. And that's a whole other podcast. And um, about... What, what am I, 62? I guess I want to say I was 59. And um, I was uh, I was doing a po another podcast with a bunch of other female comics. And we had the best time. We just, they were all, you know, road comics. We just had the best time. And I remember call calling my husband, Todd. And I said, I think this is an idea for a show. Because I started to think of all the women I knew that were in my age range. And, um, and so... I, I, I happened to luck out. We premiered at a, uh, the Cinderblock Comedy Festival in Brooklyn in 2000. It's got to be 2017. September. So I think it was also September 5th. And it was a huge hit. We sold out. Judy Gold was on the show. Jeannie Garofalo was on the show. Rhonda Handsome. Um, me. Uh, I'm, I'm sure I'm forgetting somebody. But um, it, it ended up being a great show. There was somebody who was... Uh, one of the volunteers for the festival. And she said, you know, I work at the Crane Theater. I want to pitch this show to my, my boss because I think he'd really like it. And he gave me a date in December. He loved it. And that became a residency. And we're in our third year of our residency. So um, I just was like, I've always said this. Even when I, every, every time I got older, I said, you know, we're the ones, old people are the ones that have the disposable income. Because, you know, my son still, who's 28, as you know, still asks me for money. So we're the ones that have the money. Why aren't they, why aren't people, um, you know, going to us and, and doing programming for us? So in the midst of all that, my, my partner, my, uh, Dave Goldberg, you know, I used to bring him projects all the time. And we, he, he's the one who I did the um, Shank Forbes. We mm -hmm. taped his special five years ago. 
So we've always had a really great relationship. And I told him about the idea and he says, I think it's a great idea. Let's start pitching it. We, the first place we went to was Showtime because that's where they, I got, that was my big break. The Showtime Comedy Club All-Stars, yeah. Tom Rickles. So I'm very loyal that way. Jim knows this about me. So I said, I really want to go to Showtime first. And they loved the idea. But, you know, I literally said to them, I think we had done one show at that point when we pitched it. I said, look, let, let us get our feet on the ground and let's do this. So in February, we did a big showcase at the Crane and every network was there, including Showtime. And, you know, and from there we got the special and then, you know, it, it just, you know, it just keeps going. It just keeps going. Yeah. Even in the pandemic, like the next thing I'm going to be doing is I'm going to start releasing little, vi uh, little uh, videos of each of the girls, whether it's the live show or the TV show, just doing something, you know, a little cute thing. Lunell sent me one already. Fran Drescher's going to send me one. Caroline Ray's going to send me like, so everyone knows this is a great idea and, and, you know, and I've said this, you know, I'm not kissing Showtime's ass. Good for them, because they saw what a what a great idea was. This was they really did. I mean, you know, they 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 understood the market was ready for this. The, the reviews have been great. The great thing about a pandemic, by the way, if you ever decide you want to premiere a show, yeah. you should do it during quarantine because the ratings, of course, went through the roof because everyone was home set back on March 14th. <laughs> All right, so let's uh, let's talk about that process of reinvention, because you've done that so many, so times. many times. You know, started with you being a New York City comic and then being a road comic. Uh, it, one of the first uh, pregnant comedians ever on television, yep. uh, if, if not the first. Uh, I don't know if I was the first. I, that's a good question. I don't know if I was the first. I might have been. I mean, you were one of them. Yeah. At the very least. Yeah, I mean, you know. And it was I, evening at the improv, wasn't it? Evening at the improv. Um, I uh, when 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 I got off stage uh, to hug Bud, you could tell he was like freaking out because he was afraid I was going to break my water or something. And like literally, it was literally the eighth month, so I could have given birth on stage. Um, but one of the things about that I love about comedy, and Jim knows this about me, you know, I've I was going to do this no matter what it took. Do you know what I mean by that? Like yeah. it just. Oh, yeah. You know, I've always loved it, and I've had to shift so many fucking times. But, you know, my manager, my manager said, don't get pregnant, you're going to ruin your career. And I was like, well, I want to have a kid. And I knew that I was, I was, I think, I was early 30s, I think. I had Lane when I was 33, so I was 32, and I was like, I have to do it now. I can't keep going on the road. So, so every time somebody said, you can't do it, I went, um watch me and I did you know I mean I had Lane I the Showtime Comedy Club All-Stars that I mentioned that ended up uh I was back on TV like three months after he was born I ended mm. up getting that then so I've always done that I've always reinvented myself because there's as you know there's no straight line in stand-up comedy everybody thinks well I'll be Seinfeld and yeah but even Seinfeld you know he was he was a major road comic before he did the TV show yeah do you know what I mean? There's always different avenues that you can go. Yeah. Now, um, you went from being a road comic, and then you got uh, the first residency in Vegas. Yes. When you went out there. And you uh, you opened for a, a burlesque-style show, by being kind? Yeah, it's a titty show. I mean, that's, right. you can say that. I mean, what happened was is, so, so I... Okay, so when I started, you know, I, 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 I cut my teeth here in New York City. Um, you know, I was a Catch a Rising Star act. Um, I wasn't a comic strip act because Lucian didn't like me. Uh, the improv, we, we, you know all the stories of, yeah. of that. Um, uh, so, uh, and then Who's On First with Pete Spellos was the real, he gave me a place to work out. I was there every, every weekend. He was, he was amazing to me. And then I started going on the road and bumped up to being a headliner. But one of the things I, see, this is really interesting. You know this. But back in the day, when you started to have some kind of, not notoriety, when you, you, when you had a few years under your belt, you left New York and you went to LA to try to make it in LA. And so many people don't do that now, you know? They, but, so I literally went to, so I started in 79. I, was, I got married in 84. We were in LA, I wanna say 88, 
So like nine years in, I went, okay, I'm going to go try to be in Los Angeles, which ended up not being the small, you know, like I ended up on the road anyway. Yeah. And um, had the, you know, started doing TV, had the baby. Um, the reason I ended up in Vegas was because when Lane was a little baby, I would leave to come back east to work and he'd cry every night. He'd, Don't leave me. I mean, like he knew Jewish guilt better. <laughs> still, still knows how to do that shit. And so I was literally, I love telling the story because this is such a bizarre story. So I was, I was working at the Riviera, um, at the Riviera Comedy Club uh, and shout out to Steve Sharippa because he's been my, my guardian angel in comedy. He's always protected me and took care of me. And so I'm, I'm literally in, and you know this because you've done this on the road too. You know, when, when you used to go on the road a lot, you would take stuff to make your room look like yeah. homey. So I was, you know, I, I had driven to Vegas. I knew it was going to be there for a week. I, I, you know, I put up my little pictures and all the stuff and I'm putting away the stuff in the bathroom and just to make it seem like a home. And I remember saying to myself, you know, what would be great? What would be, you know, it'd be so fucking great if I could just find a place to work and stay home and be with my kid. And the next fucking day, you talk about like all that, you know, putting it out in the universe. The next day, fucking Sharipa calls me up and goes, listen, the comic next door in Crazy Girl, she had a heart attack. She's going to be out for the summer. Do you want to, do you want to, you know, you want to work? And I was like, yeah, oh, duh. as long as I can. I, I literally made Todd bring my son to me. So we were in, we lived in the Riviera Hotel. Yeah. two months like lane thought well every kid just goes down to the buffet for breakfast and every kid just goes and plays on the in the pool all day long and had all the mater d's bringing him food and shit like that and i had somebody watching him and then at the end of the summer they decided they wanted to keep me and that ended up being five years of crazy girls and then a year later we were about to go back to new york and i got offered to do the same show the same type of show at midnight fantasy so that's why i ended up in vegas all that time Mm -hmm. So I ended up, I ended up raising Lane with some kind of normalcy, except for the fact that mom worked with kitty girls. Other than that, it was a very normal childhood. Yeah, he has some interesting childhood photos. Yes, he does. <laughs> he does. The best photo. I have it somewhere. I have to find the photo. So he, and this is now he's 13 years old. We're about to leave and he came to see the girls and we took a great photo with him, right? And one of the, and the lead dancers, so, they, he, so all the girls are here, Lane's here, and the lead dancer had, had decided she would sit in front of him. And at the last minute, she turned her head like she was blowing him, and we took the photo, and he almost died. He, almost, <laughs> he turned so green, because you're 13 years old. I mean, Jesus Christ, you know? Yeah, so I want to talk to you because this is one of the things I most respected about you. You took so much flack from the industry in New York when you started about people people saying, "Oh, you work too dirty." You, you, we, nobody wants to hear a woman right. talk like that. But you you had a vision of what your art should be. Right. Stuck with it, and in my opinion, the, you paid a price for it. There was some a lot of shows you should have been on that you didn't get on because of it. Oh yeah. Can you talk us through that process of making the artistic decision of I'm going to do what I'm going to do and not let anybody else in? Well, you know, my heroes, um, uh, besides, of course, Lily Tomlin, who is my, you know, my, my big hero, um, but my, my uh, you know, bo both uh, Carlin, of course, and Pryor, and, you know, even though they were considered dirty comics, the brilliance of what they did is like, I, I, you know, I tell people, I tell dick jokes, I said, but I do them in a way that people go, uh, you know, it's, I never did it to offend anybody. I just did it because that's how I talk. That's how we talk. I mean, you know, I mean, that's what we do. You know, we, we, we so, so this whole thing about, I, I was never going to be a Seinfeld comic. I just wasn't, I, I you know, right. I've done enough TV now, like, like, you know, I, I you, the only network TV show that I did that I had to be clean was on the Rick D show. And I was able to do clean material. I mean, I can do it, but I don't, that's not who I am. So, so that's everyone. Yeah, now, what's so funny is that I'm not, when you look at other comics now, I'm really kind of milquetoast yeah. compared. You know what I mean? Like, but oh, me, yeah. Felicia Michaels, um, Stephanie Hodge, Sheila Kay, the four of us, and Thea Vidal, we were the dirty girls. Oh, we were so, and Thea works on, on cruise ships now. So obviously she's, when you've been doing stand-up 40 years, you can figure out how to be clean and not be clean and yeah. all that bullshit. So I just, stand-up comedy is, 
is part of is is a piece of you. So if you, why would I cut off how who I am? So I I, I stuck to my guns because I was like, this is who I am. I can't. Not, I'm not going to be Rita Rudner, who I love and think is great, but I'm not going to do that. I don't write that way. Now I also want to talk about this because you not only took flag from industry, but because you were also a woman when you were doing headline gigs, there was people forget you started late seventies, the machismo of, of the male comics trying to blow you off stage. Mm-hmm. How did, you know, I know how you handled it, <laughs> but, but for the audience that's out there, could you, could you talk a little bit about the process of what you had to go through as one of the first female headliners? Um, you know, it's, it's funny because I, you'll hear me say this a lot. I just did what I did. Do you know, I mean, I had a feature act who, you know, who I I will tell you afterwards, but you know, I know who it is. Yeah. We had a discussion and I was doing a college game. He was so pissed off that he wasn't headlining. So he ends up doing 40 minutes between us, you know, like the opening act at 10, he did 40 and I'm like, you motherfucker. I said, okay. So I just waited till he was done. And you know, you have to cross the comic as, as you're going back on stage. And I looked at him and I went, and now watch how the big boys do it. And I went into a hyperdrive. I mean, I, I threw everything at, I mean, I destroyed it. I don't talk about destroying very much because I don't believe that. But I was just like, okay, you motherfucker, I'll show you what, how it is. Because he thought he did well. And then I came on stage. You know, I was just, you know, you, it's, it's, You've heard me say this. I don't have to prove that my dick is bigger than any of yours because it is. You know what I mean? So, yeah. so uh, as a woman, you know, I was lucky in the sense that I had a reputation as a not giving, uh, you know, not giving a shit, and and I would get into fights if I had to, and nobody wanted to fight me. <laughs> so, do you know what I mean? So, so yeah. I, I'm really lucky as a woman in the sense that. Nobody, nobody would really fuck with me. The, the male comics would, but then I would go on stage and prove myself, and and then they couldn't say anything. And it's so so. It's a matter of just you have to be really. You have to really believe who you are as a as a comic on stage, and I have that. You know, that's that's the one thing I had going for me from the beginning because I knew who I was. I only became a really great writer till later on in my career. Oh, as my son says, Mom, you just do a lot of faces. <laughs> You just make a lot of faces. I'm like, yeah, well, those faces bought you a fucking house in Vegas. So, you know. That's, do you think it's easier now for female comics than it was when you started? Um, I think it's, I, I think there's more of us. I don't know if it's easier. Um, it really depends on what they're talking about. You know, there's, there's still, which is amazing to me, that there's, there's still women out there who are doing obvious stuff. And when I see that, I'm like, really, you, you have, you have a, you know, you have a chance to do something and you're doing obvious, but you know, there's some, uh, every, look, being a woman, when you're on the road, you, you're immediately vulnerable more so than, than a male comic, you know? I mean, I, there was a club that I, I worked where they put us up in a red roof inn that was a, uh, a, a section eight housing. It was right next to the club. So this way the club owner didn't have to drive us. And I was the only time in my life that I ever slept with a chair under the door because I was that worried. I didn't sleep. I I literally did not sleep because I was so terrified. So as a woman, you're always going to have to deal with that. You are, you know, even like even me who is a New Yorker and is aware of it, you're always going to deal with the fact that you're a woman alone. So that must mean you want something. Hmm. Now, when... We first started, gigs were plentiful. It was the oh. land of milk and honey. Uh, they used to pay to fly us in. Ah, oh, the old days. Yeah. Uh, and, co- and cocaine. Ah, oh, it was a great uh, time. It, it was a great time. And then the market shifted. Uh, market shifted right about the time that you left Vegas. That's It started shifting while you were there. Yeah, yeah. Then, then it made a, a total shift. And there was a drop-off. Um, about half of the class that started out, you and I left. In, oh, yeah in the late 90s to early 2000s, just simply because they couldn't deal with, you know, the change in the market. How did you, how were you able and what did you do to identify the changes and figure out what you're going to do next? Um, Like I said before, I was aware of it because of my age. 
you know, so it, it, I remember actually on the phone with Steve, with Sharipa, because we were talking about, because he was doing some booking. This is before he was, you know, became a big star on Blue Bloods and The Sopranos. And he was, you know, he was helping me book rooms. And he goes, Carol, he goes, there's, there's just nothing out there. Because this is when I was between, because it was like a year before, uh, between Crazy Girls and Midnight Fantasy. And he goes, there's just nothing out there. And I remember thinking like, because I used to be able to pick up a phone and call and say, hey, I just had a fallout. And they'd be like, let me get right back to you. And they'd cancel somebody and put me in. You know, yeah. I never had to worry when my, when my, when my work was, um, something happened if the club closed. I knew that I could put the word out and I'd get work. Well, that immediately went gone. You know, that, so I was like, okay, how, do, how are we going to figure this out? So that's when I started doing the other stuff, like this, the, 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 the directing and the solo show development, because that at least brought in income another way. Um, uh, it still hasn't recovered. Because the people that, because of social media, they're bringing in, well, pre-pandemic, they're bringing in people that are not really comics, but they're YouTube stars or they're, you know, TikTok stars. And so, you know, you, you always have to feel, you always feel like you're juggling a hundred balls and like well, something's going to, something, something will stick. So I just, you know, I went, okay, we're moving again. Now we got to try this, you know, and, you know, I was lucky because I'm married. So I, my husband's working sometimes, sometimes I'm working. So we're, we're, we're able to manage, you know, getting out there. But like this, we didn't have bar shows in the, back in the day. You didn't have bar shows. You know, there were, you know, there, you either were a regular at a club or you weren't. And that was, that was the only way you were. So it's, the biggest advice I would tell people is, Learn to juggle, man, because you're going to have to figure out because you're going to be going down one road and thinking, oh, well, this is going to happen. And then, nope, that's gone. And with the with the pandemic, we're not looking at, I don't see clubs opening up in New York City before, before after Labor Day. Yeah, I think you might be right there. Let's, um, let's talk about clubs for just okay. a few minutes because uh, <clears throat> you and me are, I think I've worked with you in more different kinds of venues than almost any other human being mm-hmm. on the planet. We've done outdoor shows. We've done military-based shows. We've done beautiful theaters together. We've done, you know, ringy-ding comedy clubs. We've done awful one-nighters. Do you prep for shows differently, or do, do you just do what you do? And once again, this is where you and I differ. Yeah. <laughs> I just do what I do. I know, I know, I know, I know that, that you prep. I, I know, you know, Leanne, I always give Leanne shit for, cause she's got, you know, an encyclopedia and is always <laughs> writing everything down. Yeah. I don't really do that. The only time I do that is if, um, because to me, it's my job. You know, like for example though, um, if I go back, you know, when we go back to whatever it is, like we have a show in July in Texas. So chances are, I would say right now, chances are very high that we're gonna do the show unless there's a second wave, I'm going to have to look, I'm going to have to go on um, uh, YouTube, look at old videos of me and actually write down what I want to say. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, yeah. it's I'm not going to be able to um, be able to, because I don't remember any of my act, uh, but I'm not somebody that prepares. It's only if it's important. Like when I was doing the specials both times, because I was also the executive producer, we were on set from one o'clock. We didn't shoot till seven thirty, so I was doing EP work up until seven, and then I literally they would push me in the back and go, "You have to concentrate on your act." And I literally had my notes with me because I had no idea. Both times, both times I was like, "Yeah, I don't know what's happening." I, you know, because so, and that's also has to do with age. Um, but I don't prepare. You, I know, do. Yes, no. yes, I do. Yeah, you, and, you and I also. Uh, are similar that we don't have an ego on a show. We, you know, one of the funniest things, and I often have comics talk about it whenever you and I work together, and they go, who's closing? We're almost fighting for who gets to go up first. Yes. Oh, no. I. Are are you that same way with people that you're not friendly with? Or is there a little bit of my dick's bigger than yours in those times? No, not anymore. Um, cause I don't have to prove anything anymore to my, to anybody. I don't have to prove it to myself. If somebody wants to go on before, if someone wants to close, if they really need to close and I'm still getting headliner money, go for it. Have fun. But people, what, what you, what 
your audience has to know is the best spot of the show is the feature spot. Oh, yeah. Okay, because you've got the MC who takes the bullets first. And okay, so, so they're prime. The best part is that middle spot. People, they're just, getting the, they're just getting their drink buzz. They're happy. They're doing everything. So it's 30 minutes. It's boom, boom, boom. And then the headliner, it's still a great spot. But you have to work. You have to fucking work as a headliner, you know? Yeah. And I'm, I'm one of those people, like, I, I, you know, we know a lot of comics that like to go long. I, people used to ask me when I, was, when I was doing the road all the time, they used to say, do you need a light? I said, don't worry. Don't worry. Uh, and literally, I would get off at 45 minutes. Like, I'd be in the middle of a joke. I'd be like, good night. <laughs> what are you doing? I said, you said 45, right? Like, I, 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 yeah. I have no ego about staying on longer. I can, I can, like, there was one time when I first moved back here, there was some show at the Broadway, and they asked me if I wanted a, you know, if I, if I come to a spot. And I got there, and there were, like, six people in the audience. And they were, like, all these young female comics. And I said, you know what? Split my time up. I don't need to go on tonight. Give it to the girl. You know, like I don't, Yeah. you know, you and I've had this discussion. The reason I don't write every day is first of all, I write on stage. If I come up with an idea, nine out of 10 times, I will talk about it while I'm on stage. Do you know what I mean? So I, mm -hmm. my thing about going on stage every single night is I don't have to work on my timing. That's pretty solid. If I need to work on a piece, then I go out every night. Now let's talk about that development. Cause to me, you're literally speaking French. When you say you write on stage. Um, so do you go up with notes? Do you go up with an outline? Or do you just go up and go, want to talk about Lane and his first date? Go. Right. Yeah, that's pretty much how it, uh, that's pretty much how I've written my entire act. <laughs> now, do you go back and revise the tape? Or do you just, tomorrow night, whatever you remembered from tonight is what you right. do? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, like, if it's a new piece, if it's a new piece and I, I and been quite a while because I haven't been on stage in a while but it, if it's a new piece I, I will will go off stage and go try to remember what I said I'm like okay okay because I do tape everything but yeah. I, but I, I I'm always trying okay what did I say what did I said okay and, I, and I'll write down keywords as we all do um but yeah no that's I, I've always written that way every so often you know because my husband also he does do a lot of writing for me he'll he'll Todd, my husband's the type of guy that he will say a hundred bad jokes but that one joke will be so great that you're like okay well that's going in there yeah you know what i mean so but but i don't sit down and write like there's there's a there um uh, there's a meme that i just put out which was um did you see it, the one where about the six feet and the six inches yeah I did. okay so i put that me and I, I had come up with i literally out of nowhere i it just came into my head and i I said, okay, well, I'm going to put that out on social media. And so I was here in my office and Todd was sitting on his de desk. And I went, how does this sound? Should I do it this way? Should I do it that way? And then we both figured out that this is the way it should sound. And, and it, it, it got a huge response immediately without making it a meme. And of course, then we made it a meme because I want to make sure that nobody steals that fucking joke. So, um, so I will do that when I have to. But I don't do it all the time. Now... I would think one of the benefits of writing the way you do is that everything comes out organically in your voice. You never have that awkward, like, right. how does this have to sound? Right. How much over the years have bits evolved for you? Wow. Are you talking about, well, you know, cause me, I don't throw anything out. I'm like no. the, the comedy recycler, you know? I mean, <laughs> I literally for the second show, for the second special, all the material was about Lane. From yeah. the moment I gave birth to 28, so that material is really fucking old. Yeah. So, um, uh, but they, but I, 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 I'm, I'm sure this has happened to you where you'll, like, you'll think uh, somebody will say, "Hey, remember that bit you used to do?" And I'm like, "Oh yeah, well, I don't, I'm not doing that bit." And then you do it, but you tweak it. You tweak yeah. it in a way like, you know, oh maybe if I say it this way, or if I drop a letter, or I do that, and and and, and it'll end up being a, a much better joke. I mean, the all the stuff I did about Lane, the reason that happened was, is I was originally going. The, the first special I was going to do, the, the, the Lane Chunk. And I just couldn't, for the life of me, you know, I'm 62 years old, I can't remember shit. So I was, I was, I was literally working the weekend before the special was going to be taping. And I was working in the Poconos and I was doing, you know, my 45 minutes of dick jokes. And there's a chunk in, in the middle of my act, which is just like that, tight, fucking perfect. And I remember saying to Todd when I got home, I said, I'm doing that piece. 
because I haven't done it. Like when you're doing a TV show, you grab pieces from all your different bits because you're trying to, you know, do it concisely and everything. Yeah. So that's why I, so that's why that didn't happen for the first special. I did really tried and true material for the second special. I didn't know we were having the second special, but because I was working on the lane stuff to try to get it for the first special, it ended up becoming part of my act again and it got yeah. stronger and it got tighter. And that's why it ends up in the second special. Now let's talk about two things. One is, um, I remember uh, when the Underground Comedy Festival uh, had live shows in New York. Uh, um, yes. Me tagging you to MC yes. and asking you to MC because, in my opinion, the MC is the most valuable position on a show. Oh, if yeah. If your MC is good, you're going to have a good show. If your MC is horrible, you have a horrible show. And you are an unbelievably underrated MC. Aww. Thank you. So what do you think makes for a good MC? Well, I think the reason I'm, I, I, I think the reason I'm a good MC is because of the 10 years in Vegas, because basically that's what I was doing. Do you know what I mean? Like people are not coming to see me in crazy girls. They were coming to see the tits and Oh, okay. There's 10 minutes of, you know, of a woman talking. So we'll listen to her. So I got really used to like, there's, there's, stock lines that I, I did in Vegas that I will still use now. Like, like in Vegas, there was always a father that was bringing his fucking 21 year old son to see the show. So I would immediately find, find him. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and I yeah. would always co and that would become my, that would become my go-to person. I would, everything I did was to him. And I still do that. I still do that. Um, you know, I always find the youngest person, in the, I always find the youngest person in the show so I can fuck with them. I did it on the special, the first special. I, there was a young girl right in the front row, looked like she was 12 years old, just nailed her. And then Lynn Coplis, who went on after me, yes, after Carrie, she went right after her. So like, we, there was a nice little, you know, flow through. But the, the thing about an MC is it's, it's not about you, it's about the show. And that's the thing as, as a comic who was in titty shows, it's not about you, you're there, to make the people laugh and let's bring on the girls again. So that's, it's, it's, if, if there's like, in other words, you open the show, warm the crowd up, you know, where you're from, what do you do? Maybe do a couple of jokes, bring on the first act. At some point, if you want to do your material, do it somewhat in the middle of the show where it's warm, the audience is warm. So they'll, they'll be more responsive to you, you know, and don't do a lot of material. It's not, this, being an MC is not about you. It's about the show. And that's really hard for comedians to understand. Yeah, it certainly is. I also want to talk about performance style because you, your style has evolved over the years, but it hasn't changed over the years. You're up there, you are bigger than life. You're, mm -hmm. you take control of the room and you've, it, it's just amazing. You have as much energy with me watching you now perform as you did when I saw you as a 25 year old perform. Well, that's the drugs. <laughs> Is <it> the drugs? <laughs> it's the drugs. Um, so what's the question? My, I think my question is, <laughs> you stopped me with the drug reference and I had a flashback. Um, my question is performance wise, how much of what you do was an evolution and how much was conscious thought and construction? Well, I think when I was younger, I, I know when I was younger, I was a much angrier person on stage and I took everything personal. That's the first thing, but I was much angrier. So when I went after somebody, people were terrified because I wouldn't, you know, I, 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 there would be no witty repartee between me and the heckler. It would be like, are you heckling me? And I would get off the stage and want to stab them. So I learned to <laughs> bring that down. Um, I think a lot of what you're seeing now on stage is 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 40 years of knowing that I'm good at what I do, mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, and understanding the way crowds work. Um, the, the great thing about Vegas was there were a lot of foreigners. There were, you know, I mean, I, especially towards the end. Um, uh, but you know, I would say 50% of the audience was foreigners. Sometimes it was all Asian. And I had to get up there and do my act as if they were laughing uproariously. And what you do at that point, you just go, hey, so, blah, 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 blah. 
one, you know, like in your mind, you're like, okay, wait here. This is where the beat is. This is where the laugh was. And you go in. So I learned, I learned not to take, uh, I, I learned to know what is funny and what's not funny by, by having an audience that sometimes could understand me and sometimes could not understand me. So, and mm. I think, I think the confidence comes from, I know that I would say most, most of my stuff is funny. I would say a lot of it is funny. Sometimes there'll be a hit or miss, but for the most part, the jokes are there. So that's, that comes from confidence of just saying, well, if you don't laugh, I'll be there. I'll be at another show and they'll, they're going to laugh. And that's, you know, that's really hard for a comic that yeah. it, it, the thought of, not hearing laughter, which is why one of the reasons why I won't do Zoom shows, but that's a whole other subject. <laughs> um, the thought of not hearing laughter is really hard for us. And when I talk with people about solo shows, and I even said this with, to you, um, Pete Spellos actually gave me the greatest advice about solo shows is that if you are on stage doing a solo show and they're not laughing, that means they're listening and you want them listening. So yeah. I sometimes, for the hell of it, We'll, we'll throw an audience just to see if I can get them back because I'm bored on stage. You know, because I used to do a whole bit uh, yeah. about Lane and, uh, the, you know, finding out that he jerked off, which is on the special. But back in the day when I first started doing that special, that, that, that piece, you could hear it, the audience was so fucking tense. They were so like, what is she, what, what is she, you know, and then I came up with the punchline, which of course I can't remember right now. Um, uh, and, and, and the applause was so great because it was like a relief laugh. Yeah. So, but, but I do that. I'm like, I like, I like doing that. I like making the audience hate me and then switching around. Cause I know I can do that, but that's 40 years of fucking stand up. Yeah. Knowing how to just manipulate the audience. And when you're first starting out, all you want is them to laugh at you. All you care about. Are they laughing? Is it funny? Yeah. Let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about a very specific audience that uh, we did together for a little bit of time, and that's the military audiences. Um, during the, the national mom phase of Carol Montgomery. Yes, that's right. I had national mom. God, I, I did do a lot of shit, didn't I? Yes, you did. Um, and one of the things that I absolutely love, because we brought a lot of comics with us over, over the time doing that, and you were a warrior. You won on all of them. I got to stay home and do some administrative stuff sometimes, but you would go and the audience average age, I would say 20. Yeah. Maybe even younger. Yeah. And I've never seen people laugh harder at your stuff than those, uh, those audiences, which kind of proves two things. One, that good comedy is timeless, but you know, two, that you, you understand how to talk to them. And what was more amazing to me than even the time you spent on stage was watching you interact with them off stage and how much time you spent talking to the soldiers and how much time you spent hanging out with them and, and, and being part of their lives from the times we were on base. Can you talk about the experience of doing military tours? Um, well, as you know, um, the, the, those are probably like, my son hates when I say this, but those, those tours were the best the best thing that ever happened to me, even though my son's like, what about me? I'm like, forget about it. Uh, um, my dad was a Korean War veteran and um, he didn't talk much about it. You know, um, the story is, is that, um, cause he was injured, he was shot, um, he was shot in the hand. Um, so I don't think he did, saw a lot of um, battle, but the story, and I'm, to this day, I'm, I'm assuming it's true because I've heard it enough, was that he was, um, they were, they were in a foxhole. He was, I think the, the guy who, he was the gunner, the one who puts the billet, bullets in and he was in the center and two people were left and right of him and they were both killed and he wasn't. So I always knew that I wanted to go back to, um, I always wanted to do something for the truth because of my father, even though I, I, I was not like, as a kid, I never said, oh, my dad's, you know, my, da my dad's ex-army. I never, I never was that type of kid. I just, it was always in my mind. And I was asked, I was asked for years to go there. And I was like, I'm not leaving until my son is an adult. And when he was 18, we were doing the New York Underground Comedy Festival. And mm -hmm. I think it was one of the last years. And you were busy doing something. And you, you handed off this email to me. Yes. And it was on Forces Entertainment. And they said, we want to we wanna, uh, 
we want to see some of your comics and we, we had a showcase and um, I, w I didn't think I could go because I am dirty and I, you know, I know that the military, you know, wants it to be somewhat clean, even though, you know, they're shooting people. Uh, and we ended up doing a showcase at Gotham, a live showcase. Yep. And the head of the head of the, the, the civilian head of law enforcement entertainment, I closed the show that night, said to me, oh, you're going. <laughs> Okay, so so you know, um, and we ended up. Uh, we the first tour we ever did was in Iraq, and during the war, uh, it was. To this day, that 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 experience was. There were so many feelings, you know. It's it's such a it's such a. Yeah. Um, uh, as a woman, uh, you you'll love this story. You were not on this tour with us. Um, it was me, um, Stephen Cruiser, Mark Rickadonna, Felicia Michaels, and Leanne Lord. Okay, so we get off the plane. Now, this is the first time we've ever done this. So I didn't know that you had to go get visas. So we're trying to find out where to go to get out of the airport. And um, I'm the leader, I'm the troop, troop leader, and not one guy, I would say, excuse me, um, do you know where, and the men ignored me, ignored me. So I had to go, cru I had to go to fucking cruiser and, and I'll walk up to him and go, can you um, be my um, chaperone so we can find out how to get the fuck out of here? And he, of course, that was yeah. the greatest day of his life, that he had to be my chaperone. And of course he found it and we, we ended up being picked up by the right people. But Felicia Michaels is this gorgeous blonde woman. And there are no blonde women in Kuwait. So I'm literally holding on to her going, if you fuck, if you fuck with me at all, I'm selling you to the highest bidder. Because I mean, I'm telling you, there were, it, it was, it was, it was, to be a, a New York Jew and a feminist in that in that environment mm -hmm. blew me the fuck away. I mean, like you, you're like, all right, you know what? Maybe it's not so bad in the, here in the states. It's I, bad now, but not yeah. back then. I, I kept telling everyone the scary part wasn't being on the bases. The scary part was the airport to the bases. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, because you know, you and and. Uh, when you travel into third world countries, for lack of a better, you know, when you're, when you're traveling in, in countries that are not America, they don't have boarding. They just open the doors and yeah. you, you basically are running for your life to get to a seat. And I remember we were in, I want to say we were in Germany and they had taken a, it was a bus of people. We were going to the plane. Like sometimes you have to do this. And there's like 50 people stuck in a, you know, like the, the thought of it now with Corona would be like, oh my God. And we're stuck there and we get up to the plane and they don't open the door and we're just sitting there. We're just sitting there and it's getting hot. And you know me, I'm older. And I, finally I start banging on the wall thing. Like, get us out of here. Get, then everybody started fucking get us. Cause they were so used to being like, okay, we're, we're, we're staying in here now. Okay. And then, you know, it's, it's, it's the, it gave me the greatest, um, what's the, the right word? The feelings of, of being able to do that for the military is one of the greatest accomplishments I've ever done. But it, you really get spoiled as an American because when you, they don't care. Sometimes they care and they want to kill you. That's another thing. Yeah. There are only two times I've ever seen you yeah. at a loss for words. Uh -huh. um, the, uh, the biggest time for me was after our first show in Korea. Mm -hmm. when you finally played Korea. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that is the closest anyone's ever seen you cry in public. Yeah, yeah. thank you, Carol, thank you. Um, yeah. But it meant a lot to you. Oh, absolutely. And, it, it, and, it meant the uh, world. Yeah, and I think the other one was a show at, uh, uh, a show at the Tribeca Performing Arts Center when oh, Lane finally understood what you what you were talking about all these years yes yes but the, the thing with the korea and and that was the that was the show that they gave me the plaque for my dad that yeah that had that had that had um fake swords in it so it took forever to be able to ship it back home do you yeah. remember that when they were like you're sending weapons i'm like you gave this to me you asshole i mean just so uh, it meant a lot to me to um to do the Korea thing because because I knew it meant a lot to my father because my father remembered seeing Bob Hope. So it was kind of a nice full circle 
that now I was doing, you know, one of, his, one of his heroes was doing, now I was doing it too. So it was a really nice moment. And yes, I might have shed a tear, but that is not for any, this is not for the public to know that I actually have emotions. Should I should edit that part out? Because <laughs> Lord knows I'm going to edit that out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. We started at a time when there were still giants wandering around the clubs. I mean, you know, yeah. I, I can't tell you how many times I've brought Larry David on stage. Yeah. How many times I've brought Larry Miller on stage. Um, Riser. Riser. Bill and, Moore. And, and even the generation before wandering in, I remember one night at Catch a Rising Star when Jonathan Winters wandered in to do a set. Yeah. You know, so mm -hmm. who were some of the people that, because for me, uh, you know, very notably, Sam Kennison kind of saw me when I was young and just went, all right, let me teach you how to do things the right way. Right. Who were some of the, the veteran guys that reached back and and helped you? Were there veteran guys that reached back and helped you? Um, the, 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 there weren't a lot of guys, I, I yeah. The one time I remember is when I um, when I finally passed a catch, Paul Reiser was the MC, mm -hmm. and I went on stage and I did my set, and he came off stage, and and said, you know, you were great, you're you're part of the club, and I remember calling my husband and saying, <gasps> Paul Reiser told me, you know, like it was such a, you know, he was he was very kind and every, you know, I don't know if anyone's. I, I'm sure probably people have. I just, it's really a long career. It's 40 years and stuff. My one favorite story about some, these are, remember, I've been around so long that all these people weren't famous yeah. when I was, you know, so like, so I remember going to the comedy store one of the first times I was there and I was, I was lamenting because back then the rumor was that, you know, comedy store comics stole material and I was so like afraid and I was I was out um I'll tell you the whole story because this it has to do with Sam also but I was out there I was waiting to go on to do a I was warming up I was doing a TV uh straight to video special and I was saying this to some of the comics who were sitting outside and Sinbad who was Sinbad but not Sinbad said to me listen Carol you know they can take your jokes but they can't take you they can't take a, they can't take away you and that's probably why when you talked about my persona and everything, that's where the persona really started. Because he said, jokes are jokes, but they can't steal who you are on stage. And the reason I was there was I did it. I did a straight to video TV special called Women Tell the Dirtiest Jokes. Mm. And it was me and Patty Rossborough and Judy Tenuta, uh, Marsha Warfield, Lois Bromfield. Okay. Yeah. And I knew Sam and, and I knew Carl, uh, you know, Sam's best friend at the time. And they said to me, we'll get you a spot at the comedy store so you can work on your set. And Sam, I mean, this, I, I love telling this story about Sam because he was so sweet and he was starting, you know, he was starting to get his little buzz, but he wasn't Kinison yet. He came out to the LA Cabaret, which is all the way in Encino, with, like in the middle of fucking nowhere. And he, cause I was also doing spots there. And he came and he, he watched the, he watched the, he came and held my hand during the tape because I was so nervous. Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, forget he was a really decent guy. I mean, yeah. uh, him and Rick Wright from Rick and Ruby. Do you remember? Yeah, Ruby? I remember Rick. Um, him and Rick Wright uh, sat on either side of Mitzi for my comedy store audition to make sure she watched. Because right. she notoriously would walk away. Oh, absolutely. She would be like, oh, so I got to go get, and you're like, uh, what? Yeah. 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 No, so, so I, I, I guess I would, I would have to say Sam, because he was very, he was very, he could not have been kinder, you know, and, and, and saying, don't worry, I'll get you. And he, and, and to this day, he, I do this every time, uh, well, we were, we were driving back into, we were driving back to the valley. And when you go over the 405 at night, you get to the hill and you look over and you see the whole, all the lights of the valley. Mm -hmm. And he, as we were driving, I forgot because I, I didn't have a car. So he was, I guess, maybe driving me back to the gig. I'm, I'm not really sure. But he said, I have this great view you, ha you guys have to see. And he took us over the hill and, you know, saw the lights in the valley. And to this day, when I'm in L.A. at night, I always remember that, you know. Yeah. He was a great guy. He was a very sweet man. Yeah. So what advice would you give someone starting comedy, not now, in the pandemic? <laughs> But when, when it comes back, what advice would you give a young performer 
as they're in their formative years? Um, research, watch as much comics, as many comics as you can, right? I mean, that's, um, that would be the first thing, you know, watch it. Like I remember, I remember taping Carol Leifer when she had her first Letterman, like with an eight track tape. Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember taping her um, on her first Letterman and watching it and, you know, and when Schiff did his, you know, watch as much as you can, learn what kind of style you want to do. And then, you know, we've talked about this. This is one thing we agree on. When you're first starting out, get on stage as much as you can. I, I mean, mm -hmm. I, I mean, it sucks now. I mean, that's the thing that I think is killing, you know, a lot of us is because so many people go, you know, I'm one of the rare ones that rarely goes on stage and I'm missing it. So the people who are on stage like every night doing four or five spots, it's gotta be fucking killing them. But that's the only way you get stronger is if you're on stage every night, you know, and, and, you know, and write, you know, you know, everyone has a different style. Like I said, I write on stage, Jim writes every day. Yeah. So you mentioned, you know, listening and, and watching before you started stand up, who were the stand ups you watched? Who were the, the pantheon for you? Uh, well, Freddie Prinze. You know, um, I remember watching him on The Tonight Show and going, what's this? Like, <laughs> what is that? You know, I, I mean, he was he was it for me. He was, I remember watching him and, and it was so, it, it blew my mind. And, you know, um, so he, it, it would be Freddie. Yeah. And, and people don't realize how great he was. He was so good. Like, I, I, I listened to his... Uh, was listening to his album a while back and I was like, man, those jokes are just, I mean, they're dated in the sense that because he's like, you know, you know, it's because he's using, uh, you know, his race and everything, but the jokes, the actual jokes are brilliant. Yeah. And, and you and I have talked about this because I, I started, I probably started because of Freddie, right. you know, having seen what he did on stage and him basically talking about my life on stage and they're like, right. I got to do this. But in, in, in the discovery element, how old were you when you decided you wanted to be a comic? Um, I was, well, I was, I didn't know I wanted to be a comedian until I was told to. <laughs> when I was in, I was, okay, so I always, comics, as you know, when we're all together, we banter a lot, you know, and we'll throw things, you know, we'll yeah. just, you know, we haven't done it in a while, but, Kids, you know, when yeah. you're around, you'll, you'll bust each other's balls. There's a lot of, and so I was very good at doing all of that stuff. And I was in, I was doing summer stock in the summer of 1979. I was, I was a, uh, um, a lighting tech um, at uh, Playhouse on the Hill in Ithaca, New York. And the group of people that I was with, it was about, I, I want to say 15, maybe 20 people who were the tech crew. And they kept saying to me, there was a guy named Ed Sherrier, who um, also very quick witted. He, he works for NFM Films now and, you know, is a big time producer and everything. But we used to banter all the time. And somebody said, you know, you should be a comedian. And I was like, I don't really know what that is. You know, I mean, because except for Freddie, you know, there wasn't much for me to, to look at. So they said, well, so Ed and I sat down one night and he said, let's write some material. So we wrote like five minutes. I don't remember what it was. Um, we were doing, we were doing summer stock. So we decided to have a Christmas in July party, like after the crew, after we'd done setting up the, the theater and we and and I did stand up in front of these 15 people and and I loved it and I went oh I want to do this so that's that's how that's when I really wanted to be a comedian but my dad my dad was always like my dad was a, a, a high school teacher and a track coach and at any of like events and you know like um, school events or those type of things graduate my father was always the MC. he was always the host mm. you know so so he brought that love of comedy. You know, I remember watching the Marx Brothers and, and you know, um, Abbott and Costello on Sunday Sunday mornings and, you know, the uh, Bowery Boys. So, you know, it, it was always around me. And so, but it wasn't until I was doing summer stock that I went, oh, I want to be a comedian. It wasn't like, like young, I wasn't young when it happened. I was too busy playing with Barbie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, final question, then we'll, we will wrap this up. Um, who was the, the first... Who was the first, like, major comic you worked with that kind of 
gave you some awe. Like I remember starting and getting a chance to open for Robert Klein right. and just being gobsmacked that I'm opening for him. Was, was there anybody in that vein for you? Well, you know this story, but I love telling it. And, and, the, and the only reason I, I'm pissed about this story is because we didn't have cameras then. So it, you have to trust me when I tell you it really happened. Um, I was doing this, I was in the original room doing, you know, doing a spot and everything. And I get off stage and this gigantic security guard, who's like eight feet tall, comes up to me and he goes, excuse me, Mr. Pryor would like to see you. I was like, what, what? And he brought me over to Richard and Richard at that point was very sick. Mm -hmm. um, but he was sitting next to Mitzi and he leaned and I was like, what is happening? You know, I thought he was gonna yell at me. You know, you know comics, we're all like, yeah. what did I do what wrong? I wrong? And he leans into me and he goes, I think you're very funny. And I looked at Mitzi and I, I went, I'm done. I mean, like I, I, I was so, overwhelmed that Richard Pryor had watched me and then took the time to say he thought it was funny. I called my husband from a payphone, hysterical crying. <laughs> what? <laughs> like I was, it, it was probably the greatest moment of my life um, because this is, you know, this is my hero and that he was able, and here's what's so great about it because he was very sick and he was, and, and he was going on. So I stayed, you know, I, you know, after I spoke to Todd, I, you know, I knew Richard was going on later. I went back into the room and he, you know, he was very frail and he comes on stage and he's, you know, he's, and somebody heckled him and clear as a bell, he became old Richard. He, he went after him so fast and then went back into this, this, but like for a moment you saw the spark was back. Like when somebody heckled him, he was like, motherfucker. It was amazing. It was just amazing. So that's, that has to be the greatest moment um, in, in, in comedy is, is meeting him. And then very quickly, I, um, you remember Dennis Blair, right? Yeah. Okay, well, Dennis used to open for George Carlin all the time. And um, when I was living in Vegas, Dennis said, do you want to come see the show? I said, absolutely. He goes, yeah, well, if, if, if George is feeling it, you know, come backstage, maybe you can meet George. And I was like, great, you know, and you know, so we went to see the show. George, of course, was, of course, opens with my favorite line of all time. This is how he gauged, this is important for the young comics, how he gauged the audience. Mm -hmm. He went on stage and his opening line was, you ever notice the people who are against abortion are the people you wouldn't want to fuck anyway? Yeah. So he knew right away in that first joke that there were going to be people leaving and he wanted them out. So he, yeah. you know, and so, so he, you know, and Todd and I, of course, were just dying. And then afterward, we went back and, and, um, Went to see Dennis and, uh, and and he goes, yeah, George isn't feeling feeling well. I went, oh, it's all right, you know, I'll come and hang out. Out of out of, I hear in the hallway, where's the dirty female comic I'm supposed to meet? And I was like, me, it's me. <laughs> so 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 I did get to meet both of my heroes. I'm still fingers crossed. I'm putting it out to the universe because I really would love for um, for Lily Tomlin to be part of Women of a Certain Age. So. When we get the set, the third one, hopefully maybe she will be the host of that. So I'll put that out there just so why not? All right. So uh, more looking forward to getting back on stage or going to a Mets game. Mets game. Are you kidding me? I mean, you. I mean, come on. I mean, I just, you know, I, I, I just, I, I love the whole idea of baseball, as you know. Uh, I, you know, I want to be able to. You know, I'm I'm one of those people that I get in my seat, and then as soon as I sit down, I sit, I get up, and I go, well, who wants to, who who wants to eat? What what are we eating? What are we drinking? You know, I love the whole experience of the game, and I miss that. I mean, this the stage. You know how I am. I mean, I love the stage, I really do, but I also love directing, and I love developing, and I love producing. Yep. So you know, I can still do. You know, the stand up is 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 this part of me. You know, like there's a huge circle, but there's Little, I mean, I, I, it'll be fun to go back because I think all of us are going to be like, well, this has been an interesting few months. You know, <laughs> you know I'm going to try not to talk about the virus because I think everyone's going to talk about the virus. And, you know, I don't want, I, you know, I've always hated that. I always yeah. hate doing what everyone else is doing. Yep. All right. So, all right. Thank you so much for spending this hour with us. Um, I'm positive we'll do another hour at some point because you got more to tell. 
people and uh, everyone needs to write to Showtime right now. So there is a <laughs> Women of a Certain Age 3. And Three, then after so you, you send that one, uh, you need to write to Lily Tomlin and tell her she needs to host yeah. Funny Women well, of a Certain Age. Here's what's uh, one of the great things about, uh, about um, doing the shows is I know that people know about the show. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like the industry knows about the show. So I think when we get, cause I always say when, I don't say if, I say when we get it, it there's nothing in the, on the books that we haven't had the discussion, but I feel it's important to, to look positive. It, is that it'll be easier to get who I want because of a third one. It was, you know what I mean? Like yeah. it was easier to get more people on the second one because we'd already done it. And anytime you do more of these things, it only makes you look good, you know, because you know the, yeah. you're only as good as your your last set. So, yeah. so fingers crossed. If Lily's listening, please, we'd love to have you. And uh, where can she find you online if she's listening? <laughs> there you go. You can find me on Facebook. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Carol Montgomery Comic, and you can find me on Twitter at National Mom. Uh, uh, you know, I'm all over the place. I so, and if you can't find me, call Jim. Yeah, I, I always know where Carol is. All right. This has been an absolute pleasure, Carol. Thank you so much for uh, stopping by and joining us. And uh, stay safe and do a Zoom show. No! Do a Zoom show! No! Bye! Bye. Quite honestly, I could have talked to Carol for another hour, and we wouldn't have even scratched the surface on what she's done. She's a producer. She's a director. She's a writer. She's a creator. She's funny. She is what we all aspire to be, and that is in the game. So learn from people like this, grow from people like this. And I think the biggest takeaway from everything that I heard from Carol is that we need to get back to going to a Mets game. Take care, everybody. We will see you next time on the Comedy Legacy Show. I'm Jim Andrinos. Good night, everybody. Worldwide Production.